Have you ever lost anything of value? Perhaps you've lost your car keys, your glasses, your wallet, your purse, your child. Have you ever lost anything that really meant a lot to you? You frantically searched for that lost object until you found it, and once you found it, you rejoiced greatly. It is with that in mind that we continue our eight-part summer sermon series entitled Storytime, Parables of Jesus. Today we come to the most popular story Jesus ever told. There's a danger of looking at this story. The danger is it's so familiar you may think to yourself, been there, done that. I know exactly what it means. I know exactly how it goes. So you are tempted just to check out. But this morning I want to encourage you to see with fresh eyes and to hear with fresh ears as we take a look at one of the most popular stories of Jesus. I invite you to take your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 15. I want to read the entire chapter, verses 1 to 32. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 15, I'll begin at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after that lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out, go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. 
Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry. He refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. May God add the richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. While Jesus made his way to the city of Jerusalem, he was surrounded by large crowds. These crowds were not only numerous, they were also diverse. In these large crowds, there were saints and sinners There were the righteous and the reprobates. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law became upset because they saw that Jesus would associate with prostitutes and thieves and drunkards and crooks. They wondered why this supposed rabbi from Galilee would associate with the riffraff of society. I find it interesting that Jesus wasn't concerned that his reputation just might be tarnished. Jesus seemed to welcome anyone and everyone who would come to him and hear his word. Jesus extended table fellowship to anybody. He was willing to eat with tax collectors and sinners. The only people that were upset at Jesus were religious people, the church people of the first century. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious elite, they wondered why is Jesus associating with the underbelly of society? In that day, to extend table fellowship meant a sign of acceptance and friendship. It's even greater than it is today. Yet even today, we still carry some of that stigma and some of that understanding. Now before you become too critical of the Pharisees. Let me just ask you, if you heard one day that your pastor had had a meal with a prostitute, what would you do? What would you think? If you heard a story that a couple of your deacons bellied up at the bar with some of the drunks of Pelham, what would you say? How would you feel? What would you think? At the very least, I think it would raise an eyebrow or two, don't you? It may cause some people to fire off something on Twitter or Facebook. 
It may prompt some conversations, but people would wonder why in the world is a supposed religious righteous individual associating with those kinds of people? That's what the Pharisees were asking. To be honest with you, they were asking a good question. Why does Jesus associate with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he go out of his way to welcome anyone, anyone who will come and hear his word? Why is it that Jesus was not concerned about being surrounded by prostitutes and drunkards and thieves and crooks? For don't you know that tax collectors were known thieves in that first century? They were predominantly Jewish men who would extort money from other Jewish citizens, taking far more than what was required of them, and everybody called a tax collector a crook by his own countrymen. The label sinner was slapped on anybody who had a lifestyle that was contrary to the word of God. The Pharisees are asking a great question. Why is it that Jesus is associating And going so far as eating with, sharing fellowship with, extending a hand of friendship and acceptance towards tax collectors and sinners. In response, Jesus told a parable. I want you to notice in verse 3 that the word parable is singular. In Luke 15, there is one parable, not three. It could be likened to Jesus... um, creating one Instagram story and tagging three pictures to it. It's precisely what Jesus does in Luke 15. Here in Luke chapter 15, the gospel writer records for us a parable, a singular parable. You know that a parable is a compound Greek word, para and balo. Para means alongside, balo means to throw. It's a story that's thrown alongside real life. It's a fictional story. But it's so closely thrown alongside reality that you could see that fictional story come to life. It's well been said that a parable is an earthly story with an eternal truth. And Jesus would commonly teach in parables. They were well-spun, off-the-cuff stories that Jesus would communicate to answer a question, to make a point. And in this chapter of Luke 15, Jesus is answering that single question of why do you associate with tax collectors and sinners? So Jesus gave a parable. This one parable has three pictures. The first picture describes a shepherd who goes after one lost sheep. The second picture is a woman who goes after one lost coin. The third picture is a father who goes after, and you're tempted to say, one lost son. But the reality is that the father is searching for two lost sons. Jesus tells this story to answer the question why he associates with the underbelly of society. He says to the Pharisees, suppose you are a shepherd with a hundred sheep. Now let me stop right there. Jesus is describing the life of a very modest shepherd. A shepherd had a thankless job. 
a shepherd was not really regarded as one who was respected in the community. In the story that Jesus tells, this shepherd um, is so poor that he only has control of a hundred sheep. The average size of a flock in the first century was about 200 sheep. And also I want you to feel the barbed wire dig of Jesus against the Pharisees. He says to the Pharisees, people who are well respected in the community, people who are the religious elite, he says to them, hey, suppose you were a shepherd. Immediately their defenses would go up. I'm no shepherd. I mean, I am a Pharisee. I'm a teacher of the law. I've been educated. I am a rabbi. I am somebody who, who, who is somebody of importance. I'm not a lowly shepherd. But Jesus says, suppose you were a shepherd. You had a hundred sheep. And that shepherd lost one of those 100 sheep. Every night when the sheep would come in, the shepherd would count them. And on this given night, he could only get to 99. There was one lost sheep. Now, to be honest with you, 99% is a pretty high percentage. If you get that on a chemistry test, you're not complaining to the professor, are you? You think to yourself, a 99? That's phenomenal. But in this story, this shepherd leaves the 99 in the open field. Jesus asked the question, will not this shepherd leave the 99 in the open country and go search for that one lost sheep? Now, there's a danger in that, isn't there? To leave 99 sheep unattended in an open field? They're not encaged. They're not surrounded by a fence. They're in an open field where they could be stolen or devoured by an animal. Yet, because the shepherd values the sheep so highly, he's willing to leave the 99 safe in the field. And go search for that one lost sheep. Jesus asked the question in such a way that it demands a positive response. Will not the shepherd leave the 99 in the field and go after that one lost sheep? And the answer is, of course he will. He will go. And when he finds it, Jesus says, he puts the sheep on his shoulders. He goes home, calls family and friends, says, rejoice with me for I found my lost sheep. And Jesus says in verse 7, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Jesus is answering the question, why does he associate with the riffraff of society? The answer is because Jesus values people. He values them as much as a shepherd values a lost sheep. He goes after them because he values them and because they repent. He's going after them specifically because they're valuable in his sight. But he's going after them also because he knows they will repent. The word repent means to turn from sin and turn towards the Savior. Yes, it does literally mean a changing of the mind. But Jesus understands that when a person's belief system is changed in their mind. Their behavioral system will be changed in their actions. 
You change your mind, you will change your actions. You change your belief system, you will change your behavior. You change from pursuing sin and you start to pursue the Savior and your life will be radically changed. The decisions you make will be drastically different. Jesus values them. Jesus knows they will repent of their sin. Why does Jesus go after the underbelly of society? I'll tell you why. Because he values them and because they repent. Jesus is an equal opportunity storyteller. So in the second portrait, Jesus says there was a woman. She had 10 silver coins, and she lost one of them. Now Jesus uh, raises the ante, doesn't he? It's not one out of 100. Now it's one out of 10. And this woman lights a lamp eagerly searches the house, sweeps diligently until she finds her one lost coin. Now, why does she do that? Because the coin is valuable to her. The word that Jesus uses is the word drachma. A drachma is a specific type of silver coin. It's, it's, it's akin to a denarius. A denarius was an honest day's pay for an honest day of work. So a drachma is equivalent to that. It was a set of ten silver coins. Some have been led to believe that this was this woman's dowry. Maybe it was. But there's nothing in the story that mandates that's exactly what it was. It may have been given around her marriage. It may not have been. But regardless, it was a, it was a, it was a set of ten silver coins. She lost one. She searched for it. When she found it, she, like the shepherd, rejoiced. She called family, neighbors, and friends. Rejoice with me, she said, for I found my lost coin. And Jesus said in verse 10, in the very same way, there is more rejoicing with the angels around God over one sinner who repents. Jesus is giving the second picture to reinforce the overall purpose of this parable. For Jesus is telling us the reason he associates with tax collectors and sinners is simply because he values them like a woman values a lost coin. He values them. Why? Because they repent. Jesus says these people are more valuable to me than a lost silver coin. These people are more valuable to me than a lost sheep. They're so valuable to me, I go after them. And I pursue them to such a degree that I find them. They're found by me. And they respond in repentance. They change their mentality. And by changing their beliefs, they change their behavior. Those that made it a goal and an aim just to pursue personal pleasure and sin. Now, after meeting Jesus and taking the word of God from the God of the word, now they have changed drastically. So now their pursuit and their pleasure is the Savior, not their sin. Jesus says, I value them. And the evidence of that is that they repent. And there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Jesus now comes to the third story. He said there was a father who had two sons. 
This father was a good father. He loved both of his boys unconditionally. He loved both of them equally. One day the younger son came to his old man. And he said, Dad, give me my share of the estate. Give me my inheritance. Give me what I rightfully deserve. Now these words of this rebellious, audacious request crushed the heart of the father. I can well imagine that the father was was bruised. He was crushed by the heavy weight of these words for he knew, he knew what the son was saying. The son was saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. I wish I no longer had any any accountability to your rules and your restrictions and your regulations. I wish I was my own man with my own authority. You have no claim over my life. I wish you were dead for you're dead to me. What makes this story so remarkable is that this father was under no compulsion to grant this request. He could have said to his younger son, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, Just be quiet, pipe down, and go back and do the chores I've told you to do. You don't have the slightest clue what you're requesting. But while this father was under no compulsion to grant this request, he did. According to the book of Leviticus, a family like this, It was in line for the younger son to receive a third of the estate. And the older son would receive two-thirds of the estate. In this moment, the father divided the inheritance. Don't miss that. He divided the inheritance. He gave to the younger son a third of the estate. And by doing that, by default, he's giving two-thirds of the estate to the older son. The younger son liquidized his assets. He went to a far country, far away from the family farm, far away from the rules and regulations of his father. Jesus said he squandered his wealth in wild living. Jesus packed a lot in every single word. He squandered his wealth. The word squander is the word picture that means to throw your possessions to the wind. He lived carelessly. He lived frivolously. It was as if he was throwing all that wealth to the wind. The word prodigal means wasteful. The prodigal son was a wasteful son. He squandered his wealth. You know, sometimes we think the word prodigal, that must mean returned. Because that was a son that returned home to the father. But the word prodigal does not mean returned. The word prodigal means wasteful. This son was extravagantly wasteful. He squandered his wealth in wild living. This is living that is so contrary to a life in pursuit of God. I can well imagine that this younger son's life was consumed with endless parties and hot women and no responsibilities. And life was fun. And life was fine. And life seemed free. As long as the money held up. But eventually the money ran out because money always runs out. And when the money ran out, so did the so-called friends. 
Jesus then adds insult to injury by saying that a famine came to that part of the country. For Jesus to say a famine came, I don't think it's because of climate change. I think that Jesus is illustrating that people suffer in one of two ways. Normally, people suffer because of poor choices. Or people suffer because of some unmitigated uh, natural disaster. And in this story, both those things collided. This young man is suffering because of poor choices that he made. But he's also suffering because it's not raining on the just or the unjust. I mean, there is a famine in the land. There's a natural disaster. And this young man has no money. He has no place to go, nothing to do. So he goes to the classified ads. He looks for a job, and he finds that there is a Gentile pig farmer who's hiring some servants. Now let that sink in. This is a kid on Skid Row. I mean, this is a Jewish boy raised in a respectable Jewish home. And now he's subjected himself to being hired by a Gentile, not just any Gentile boss, but a Gentile pig farming boss. Pigs were unclean animals. There was more than one time when the boy said, I wish my father could see me now. What would he think? He got so hungry, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. That's pretty bad, right? I mean, that's way bad. For you to think that the slop that the pigs are eating, while it won't taste good, if it sustains a pig, it just might sustain me. Because if I don't eat this, I got nothing else to eat. There's nothing else on my table. There's no other money in my pocket. There's nothing else I can do. So he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. The pig slop was something he was about to eat. And he thought to himself, what am I doing? In verse 17, he came to his senses. More than one theologian has said, in that picture, that's the, that's the moment of repentance. In every portrait, you see repentance. It's in verse 7. It's in verse 10. Now it's in verse 17. For Jesus said to the shepherd who found that lost sheep, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. To the woman who found that one lost coin, Jesus says in verse 10, there is more rejoicing around the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And now here in verse 17, we find this young man coming to his senses. He's beginning the process of repentance. He thinks to himself, my father has hired servants who have food to spare. I mean, they got good food. They got real food. They got meat and potato kind of food. They got so much food that they've got food to spare, and sometimes they have to throw it out. I wonder if my father, my merciful, benevolent father, I wonder if my father will hire me as a servant. The young man came to the conclusion, I have forfeited my right to be a son. What I have done, I've severed any prospect of a father-son relationship. But maybe, 
but maybe the benevolence of my father will be so overwhelming that he will hire me as one of his servants. When Jesus speaks of that hired servant, you expect to find the Greek word doulos. That's the most common word for servant. But Jesus doesn't use the word doulos. He uses the word mystheos. This is a day laborer. This is a person who was hired for just a few hours of a day. And the only work he was guaranteed was that work for that one day. And this young man is thinking to himself, maybe my father will hire me as an hourly waged worker. Because even if I have food just for one day, that's better than not having any food any day. So maybe he'll hire me for just one day. I'll go back to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against earth. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But will you please just make me a hired servant? The confession seemed convincing. It seemed like a plausible solution to this man's plight. So while he was still a long way from the family farm, don't miss that phrase, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. Why did the father see him? Because the father was looking for him. The father was searching for that lost son And when the father looked over the horizon and he saw his younger son walking towards the family farm, he recognized the stride, he recognized the gait, he recognized his boy's silhouette. After all, that's my son, and the father was overjoyed. We're told that the father ran to his son. In the first century and in antiquity, It would have been a social faux pas for a dignified father to be seen running in public. No father would ever run. Yet in this story, Jesus specifically tells us that the father ran to his son. The father threw social etiquette to the wind. He ran to his son. Why? Because his son was that valuable to him. His son that was dead is alive. His son that was lost is found. The father had been looking for the son. He knew he would find the son. And so the father on that day looked over the horizon, saw his son, and he ran, made a mad dash for his son. Now by now you already know that in this story, in in this picture specifically, the father represents God Almighty. And did you know that in the Bible, this is the only time that God is portrayed as being in a hurry? It's the only time in the Old Testament or the New Testament. There is no other story, there's no other sacred sentence that communicates that God runs after anything. No, we're oftentimes told to be patient and wait on the Lord. Wait on his timing. Yet in this story, the father could not get to his son fast enough. He made a mad dash for his younger son. This is the only time in all the Bible when God is ever portrayed as being in a hurry. And what is he hurrying after? He's hurrying after children who are valuable unto him. He pursues that son. He, he comes and 
and he threw his arms around his son and he kissed him on the cheek. Literally, the text reads, he fell on his neck. Can you see the imagery? That this loving, compassionate father, he meets his son and he falls on his neck and he kisses his cheek and he keeps saying, son, I love you. I'm glad you're home. Son, I love you. I'm glad you're home. Son, I love you so much. I am so glad that you're home. And the son says, dad, I've got something to say. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just to be honest with you, I don't know if the father was even listening to the boy. He gave orders to the servants that were running right alongside the father. And the father turned to the servants and he said, quick, I want you to bring a robe, ring, and sandals and put on him. By the actions of the father, he was communicating his compassion. It's not only that he said, I love you, but he demonstrated, I love you. And God the Father has done that repeatedly for you and for me, beloved. Not only does God the Father say, I love you, but he demonstrates, I love you, in very tangible ways. In this story, he orders for a robe, a robe of nobility to be placed on this man's shoulders. He orders for the ring, the ring of sonship, to be placed back on this son's finger. He orders for sandals to be placed on his feet because only poor people would walk around without any sandals on. By the father's actions, he's communicating that the sonship of his son was never broken. Let me say that again. The sonship of his son was never broken. He also asks for one other thing. He gives his servants the order to kill the fattened calf. I want you to notice that he did not give the order to fatten the calf. No, he said, I want you to kill the fattened calf. What does that mean? It means that the father did not wait until his son was found to provide the anticipated rejoicing. No, while the father was looking, he was fattening the calf. He didn't wait for the son to be found because he knew that one day the son would be found. So he ordered for the fattened calf to be killed. He ordered for the prize bull to be slaughtered. He ordered for this animal to be sacrificed. Why? So there could be rejoicing and celebration and, and provide enough food to feed the entire village because this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Friend, I want you to know that God has been fattening the calf. He's been looking for you for he's the hound of heaven. He pursues you and he always finds whomever he pursues and when he finds you he rejoices and he kills the fattened calf for you he doesn't say fatten the calf but he says I've been fattening the calf all along because I knew your day of salvation was coming I knew that you would receive the gospel by faith I knew that your day of reconciliation would return I knew this day was coming because I'm the father who always looks for his children and in this story in this story Jesus says that the father gave the order to kill the fattened calf. Like the shepherd who found the lost sheep, like the woman who found the lost coin, when this father finds his lost son, there's rejoicing. They rejoice and they celebrate because that which was lost is now found. They're rejoicing because reconciliation has happened. Reconciliation is not so much you finding God. 
Reconciliation is God finding you. Paul says in Romans, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Ephesians, our great God is described as one being rich in mercy, for he made us alive in Christ Jesus. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. It is the beloved disciple named John who marvels at the love that God has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. It was Philip Yancey who said, There is nothing you can do to make God love you any more than he already does. Friend, God's love for you is not motivated by your performance. God's love for you is motivated by his passion. It is not about what you do. It is not about what you refrain from doing. It is not your performance that motivates God's love towards you. You are valuable in God's sight just because God values you based upon his passion for you. God loves you. And there are days that you're unlovable, right? There are days that I'm unlovable. And even on those most unlovable days, our God still loves us. Remember, Jesus is telling this parable. He's giving these three pictures of this one Instagram story. He's communicating all of this to answer one question. Why does Jesus hang out with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors and thieves and drunkards and crooks? And the answer is because they are valuable to him and because they repent. So on this day, there was a great celebration. The younger son repented. Before he could even get back home, the father found him. Because God the Father is the hound from heaven. He comes. He pursues us. He always finds that which he is searching for. He threw a great party because his son, the one they thought was dead, is alive. A miracle took place. A transformation took place in his life. They thought he was lost. He's found. But I told you that the father had two sons. We were told that the older son was working in the field. He came close enough to the house that he could hear the music and the dancing. You know, if the music is loud enough and the beat that's dropped is heavy enough, you can hear the dancing before you see the dancing. This man, this older son, he heard the singing and the dancing. Called one of his servants. Said, what's going on at the family farmhouse? And they said, well, uh, your father's throwing a party because your younger brother is now home safe and sound. That older brother became angry. He should have taken his spot as the host of the party. After all, in that culture, being the older son, he should have been the one to receive all the guests from the village. He should have acted as the maitre d' of the party. But instead of joy, there was jealousy in his heart. Instead of grace, there was a grudge that built up. Instead of excitement, there was almost envy. He became angry. 
he refused to go in. In verse 28, the father, the same father that ran to his younger son, the same father went to his older son and pleaded with him. That word that's translated as he went is the same imagery as the father who's running. That the father who ran after his younger son is the same father who runs after his older son. He runs to his older son and he pleads with him. And the older son blasts his dad. I've been slaving for you all these years. I never went off the reservation. I've never even disobeyed your orders. I've never disobeyed one of your regulations. Now at this moment, if that were me, I think as a father I would call a timeout, wouldn't you? I say, wait a minute, boy, you trying to tell me you've never disobeyed me? Let me just remind you of a point here, point there, case here, case there. Oh, but the father, he knew when to speak and he knew when to keep his mouth shut. And on Father's Day, that's a great lesson. Sometimes, men, we need to speak. Sometimes we just need to keep our mouth shut. At this point of this story, the father stands there. He allows the older son just to spew verbal vomit. He says, I've been slaving for you, father. I've never left the reservation, never gone off the family farm, and yet you never gave one young goat for me to celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours returns, the one who squandered your wealth with prostitutes and wild living, the one who has wasted uh, your inheritance, when he comes home, you kill the fattened calf, you kill the prized bull, you slaughter that uh, wonderful animal so that Everybody could celebrate and be glad. Dad, you are making us a laughing stock in society. Do you know this is embarrassing? Do you know what everybody's saying about you? They're saying that you are no longer a dignified father. You're no longer one who is respectable and upright, but you've fallen all over yourself just to show yourself and be so embarrassing to make over this loser, to make over this floozy of a son, this younger son who's wasted your wealth with prostitutes. When he comes home, you bend all over yourself and you just you just really are acting like a fool. Do you know what other people are saying about you? You are making us and our family a laughing stock in this community. And the father said to his son, You've always been with me, everything I have is yours. No truer statement did he ever speak. Everything I have is yours. He'd already divided the inheritance. A third of it went to the younger son. Two-thirds of it went to the older son. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours, not just a son of mine, but a brother of yours, who was dead is alive. The one who was lost is found. We had to celebrate. We had to celebrate and be glad? Why? Why do we have to celebrate and be glad? The older son must have thought. The answer? Because God values younger brothers. And we had to celebrate because that younger brother had repented. But God doesn't value only younger brothers. God values older brothers too, right? He ran after his younger son, and he ran after his older son. It was Dr. Al Mohler who one day made the statement that every parable 
is a hand grenade. It's explosive. And I don't know if you know it, but when Jesus comes to the end of this story, he just pulls the pin and drops the hand grenade. I mean, in this story, the younger son represents tax collectors and sinners. The older son represents the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And the father of this story represents God Almighty. And God, he pursues his children, all of his children, because of his love for us. Because he values us, yes, that highly. In fact, Jesus will say just a couple of chapters later in Luke chapter 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's who Jesus is. That's why he came. He is the Son of Man. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. And I contend that both the younger son and the older son were lost. I've told you before that biblical characters are not given to us as models for morality, but rather as mirrors for identity. When we peek and peer into the page of the Bible, we find people that look just like us. So my question to you is this. In this third picture, which son looks most like you? The younger son or the older son? I would also ask this. Did the older son go into the party? Did the older son take his rightful place as the host and maitre d'? Did the older son repent? It's at this moment that you should hear the pen being pulled from the hand grenade. It's at this moment you should see Jesus as he drops the hand grenade in your lap and mine and simply backs up and walks away and says, how does it end? At this point, you're invited into the story. How does the story end? Remember, Jesus is speaking to Pharisees, and he's answering the question, why do I associate with the riffraff of society? Why do I extend grace to the underbelly of society? And the response is, because Jesus values them and they repent. Let me tell you, there is joy all throughout this story. And the reason there's joy is because no one has greater joy than being found by God. That's the greatest joy in the world. The younger son experiences joy because joy is experienced when grace and repentance embrace. That's joy. When grace of God and repentance of the sinner, when they embrace, there is joy that is unspeakable. It is joy that cannot be tarnished. It's joy that cannot be taken away. It's joy that cannot be debilitated. It is joy that is eternal. It's the joy that the younger son found. My question is, did the older son get it? And the reality is we don't know. Can I just be confessional to you? There are times when I look like the younger son. And there are times when I look like the older son. There are moments in my life when I have a rebellious streak of which I am not proud. There are moments that I look like the younger son. There are also moments when I have to put down and execute the Pharisee in my spirit. Because when I least expect it, the Pharisee rears its ugly head. I know that Pharisee rises up when sometimes 
I ridicule the people upon which God has graced because of what they've done and what they've done are things that I used to do. And I think to myself, "Uh uh-oh, there's the Pharisee that rises up inside of me. So this morning, I wonder, how do you respond to this story? Jesus gave this story to answer the question, why does he associate, why does he fellowship, why does he accept the underbelly of society? The reason is because he values them and because they repent. So I feel like I just need to do what Jesus did. I just need to pull the pin, drop the hand grenade in your lap, and walk away. How does a story end? God values you. Whether you find yourself in the pigsty or whether you find yourself in the field of the family farm. And I know you well enough that some of you know the smell of the pigsty, don't you? I can get a hearty amen because you understand the stinky smell of the pigsty. But you also know the smell of the family farm that you think you've never left. And you look down upon others who have abandoned the family farm and they're, they're, they've, they've wasted their life in, in uh, frivolous living. And friend, I want you to know that whether you're in the pigsty or whether you're in the field of the family farm, the father runs to both because he values you and he longs for you to repent. So this morning the altar's open. The hound from heaven is looking for you. Whether he finds you from the pigsty, whether he finds you from the family farm, he longs for you to come and repent to him. Because the only route to reconciliation to God is repentance. The only route to reconciliation to God is repentance. So today, won't you turn to the one who's pursuing you For Jesus values you and he longs for you to repent. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this moment of invitation. Lord, we pray that you'll be honored and glorified. Lord, draw us unto yourself, both saint and sinner, righteous and reprobate. Oh, Father, draw us unto you and help us to repent of all of our sin. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.